Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hi everyone, uh, this is Amy Chattel, your resident extraordinaire host. I'm here with Alex Carter, one of our new hosts, and I'd like to introduce him to you all. But before we get into that, I did just want to say what kind of episode we'll be running today. So we'll be running a step two hematology-based question series today. And beyond that, Alex, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about yourself and what they should really know about you? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Amy. I'm very excited to uh, get involved with uh, Inside the Boards. I've been a long-time listener, going all all the way back to the Step 1 Days, uh, the Study Smarter series. You know, I've kind of followed the explosion of this podcast as it's grown over the years. It's really exciting to become a part of the team. So really looking forward to uh, getting involved. We're happy to have you. Yeah, it's wild to hear you now even talking about yourself as a as this, you know, psychiatrist. And I remember even hearing your introductory episode like a year ago when you were just a humble fourth year like myself. So uh, <laughs> totally different worlds now. Oh, let me tell you. <laughs> Hope intern years treated you well. It's, it's been rough, but I definitely feel like I'm coming into my own as a physician a lot more now. You know, you got to You, I think it's definitely a, a process like the, the first day, day one, July 1st is a little overwhelming. You're stepping in from being a med student to being responsible for patient care in a whole new way. Um, and you, you start growing a little bit more confident in your skills and your training as you go along. So I would say get through the first couple of months and you'll get there in terms of confidence. Yeah. You just got to get the, uh, get the reps in. I think we've all experienced it in every, every stage of medical school, right? In every stage of training, you advance a stage and you feel like you're just totally overwhelmed. And then suddenly after a few weeks, you're like, how am I able to do this? It's just, you, you, we all adapt. And uh, yeah, it's, it's cool to see. So a uh, little bit about myself. Uh, as you mentioned, I am a fourth year, currently in the thick of interview season. I will be applying for internal medicine residency. Uh, and I should mention, I currently attend the Ohio State uh, College of Medicine, and I'm interested in becoming either a hospitalist uh, or possibly pursuing a fellowship in palliative care. Uh, that's I recently performed a palliative rotation and really fell in love with the, the, the field. So 
Uh, outside of medicine, I really love sports. I'm a big NBA fan. I also like to play tennis myself, like rock climbing, staying active. Um, I also try to be pretty balanced and try to get as much reading in as possible that hasn't really been possible until this lovely fourth year when I actually have a little bit of free time again. And so I try to read it. And then I also uh, edit for another website uh, called In Training. It's a peer-reviewed publication for medical students, so shameless plug there. And it sounds like you actually are familiar with in-training yourself. Is that right? Oh, definitely. I posted a couple of pieces um, throughout my medical education on in-training. So, frankly, I'm not surprised at all that we had similar interests and now we're both um, here on this end of the med-ed world. Yeah, yeah. It is a small world, as you you say, in in the med-ed world, but... uh, yeah, it's exciting to, as I've mentioned, being part of the, the Inside the Boards team now. So for my introductory episode here, uh, my thought was to talk about some hematology. I recently completed a rotation in outpatient hematology. And so I felt like this is a subject that I had not uh, learned as much during medical school. It might've been a little under addressed. And I remember when I was going back to those, you know, step one questions and everything, I was always intimidated when I saw those lab values come back in this question stem and, oh no, the dreaded, you know, ferritin and iron studies and never knew how to approach that. So uh, having had a chance to read a little bit more about the subject, I think I've learned a lot about how to, how to approach these questions and was hoping to uh, address some of those topics today. Wonderful. And I will say, uh, coming off of a primary care rotation, sometimes you know, you have five minutes to kind of pre-chart before you run into the room to see your patient and, you know, they've come in with their yearly labs and you have to be able to glance at your CBC and be able to go, oh, yeah, they need to take some iron or, oh, I should order some more uh, labs on them or what could possibly be going on. So I think this would be very applicable not only to future questions and so you can be a little calmer when you and more confident when you face them, either in New World or um, on your boards, um, but also it'll make you more confident um, in whatever specialty you go into, because most of the time you're going to be glancing at a CBC at one point or another. Yeah, this is definitely one of those subjects that's not just for the test. There's definitely clinical correlations. So even though, as we said, we're going to be posting this in the study smarter series for step two, I think any listeners can benefit from just a little bit of a basic hematology review because it's no matter what level in your training you are, this is something that could apply to you. So with uh, that being said, do you want to get started? Absolutely. Our first question today, which of the following would be the most specific tests for this patient's underlying disorder? Starting from the top, a 16-year-old girl presents to the clinic with complaints of excessive fatigue. She also complains of shortness of breath while climbing stairs. On presentation, she has a temperature of 98.6 degrees, a pulse of 88, a blood pressure of 110 over 60, and a respiratory rate of 16. The physical examination is insignificant except for the presence of generalized pallor. She has a hemoglobin of 7, a hematocrit of 22, in which case the normal is 36 to 47, an MCV of 66, a total white blood cell count of 4,700 and a platelet count 268,000. A serum iron level is 43 with the normal range being 11 to 29. And ferritin is 460 with the normal range being as high as 150. 
which of the following would be the most specific tests for this patient's underlying disorder? And the answer choices are number one, total iron binding capacity, number two, Prussian blue staining, number three, hepcidin levels, and number four, hemoglobin electrophoresis. So when we look back at this question, uh, there are a few values that I would like to highlight just because they're a little bit abnormal. And there were a lot of numbers, which I realize is somewhat difficult to process in the podcasting format. So basically she has normal vital signs and the physical examination is normal with the exception of some pallor. Uh, her hemoglobin is low at 7.0 and her hematocrit is low at 22%. Her MCV is a little low at 66. We usually see about 80 to 100 as like the normal range. And then otherwise, uh, her blood counts look normal, though her serum iron is elevated at 43 and her serum ferritin is elevated at 460. So she has a high ferritin, a high serum iron, and a low hemoglobin, really, if you wanted to distill it down to the most important findings. So with those numbers in mind in this presentation, I guess, what are some of the things that jump out at you, Amy. Well, uh, for starters, just coming from a resident physician point of view, whenever I see hemoglobin of seven, um, I'm immediately thinking of transfusing the patient, which is probably one of the next steps that would happen. But the STEM is specifically asking for us to recognize like what the disease process is and what's the most specific test to identify the underlying disorder. So I need to figure out what the underlying disorder is first. Obviously, it's a disease of our hemoglobin at some level or iron production or i guess hemoglobin from the iron production although it definitely isn't like an iron deficiency anemia because she is totally loaded up on iron iron levels are above normal her ferritin levels are above normal also that mcv is going to start narrowing down things for me so it's low microcytic um so that's going to get rid of any of your macrocytic causes of anemia like B12, B9 deficiency. Um, it's not normocytic. So now you're just left in the ballpark of, is this a thalassemia? Is this an anemia of chronic illness? Is this an iron deficiency, which we've already ruled out, a lead intoxication or sideroblastic anemia? I mean, really, you're probably gonna have, if it's a thalassemia, she's a little old, to be having this kind of presentation. You're normally gonna diagnose a lot of your hemoglobinopathies when a patient is younger, if they're really serious, or you'll find them at her age on a blood test, but I don't think it would be this severe, like she wouldn't be this symptomatic. Really the big giveaway for this um, is the fact that the iron is so elevated and the ferritin is elevated. Um, so I'm thinking that the disease is sideroblastic anemia. Yeah, I think that was a really great breakdown right there. Um, you, you honed in right on the, the biggest, most pertinent finding, which is that high serum iron in a patient that is also anemic. That's kind of an odd pairing of you know, the lab values, right? Usually when we think of anemia, we tend to assume it's a, an iron deficiency anemia, but this patient has normal serum, if not elevated serum iron. And the only things that make me think of elevated serum iron are like hemochromatosis or things like that, which she clearly doesn't have. That's, that's, that's going down a whole other rabbit hole. But uh, so I think taking a step back, we have a patient here that is anemic. She's got this pallor. So she's got, and specifically, I should say, a microcytic anemia because that MCV is 66. 
considering how do we approach an anemic patient, first, I like to classify it as microcytic, normocytic, or macrocytic, and we've already labeled her as microcytic. When we look at microcytic anemias, then we can break that down into a problem with heme or problem with globin, as you talked about. Uh, we have ruled out the globin issue just because this does not present like a typical thalassemia. Um, usually, you know, we, we would see, in a, especially in step type questions with thalassemias, you'll, you'll have some information about the patient's background. They'll have a family history of anemia. They'll probably be of Mediterranean descent, or it will mention the patient's ethnicity, something like that. So this is more likely a problem with heme. And with heme, we have two components. There's iron and the porphyrin ring. So we know that her iron itself, the iron levels are okay. In fact, they're actually slightly increased. And so that makes me think, okay, so there's either a problem with porphyrin synthesis, which could be like a porphyria, or a problem getting the iron into the heme molecule, which would be like a sideroblastic anemia. So in this case, we've pretty much narrowed it down. We, she, she has a sideroblastic anemia. So now that we, we've figured that out just from these labs, let's like reword the interrogatory and then look through our answer choices and we can kind of rule out some of these distracting answers and hone in on the correct one. So if we were to reread the interrogatory, knowing that this patient has a sideroblastic anemia, uh, the question now becomes, which of the following would be the most specific test for sideroblastic anemia? Uh, so our first distractor would be the total iron binding capacity. So in a sideroblastic, er, total iron binding capacity rather, uh, that's something that we see when we order those serum iron tests that you, you have to interpret that classic uh, table. Do you remember that table from step one? Uh, <laughs> that's yeah. all I have to say. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, that's right. All the ups and down arrows and the side to side arrows and I think you can, you can always memorize that table and, you know, get the Anki cards out and try to memorize it. But it, it helps, I think, to just think through those values a little bit more and really understand what's happening in each of those processes. Uh, that's just another plug, you know, to try to think through questions and not just memorize pictures and tables. But anyway, so in this case, the total iron binding capacity, we're actually not going to expect to see anything very remarkable in a sideroblastic anemia with the total iron binding capacity. It actually, it could be normal. It could even possibly be a little decreased because that transferrin in this case would be saturated. This patient has enough iron. They're not trying to increase their ability to bind even more iron. They're not going to have a high iron binding capacity like that. So it's really not going to be a specific test that will tell us any more about her sideroblastic anemia. It won't confirm anything for us. Uh, we'll skip number two, the Prussian blue staining, because that is in fact the right answer. We'll go to hepcidin. So Hepcidin, uh, this is a nonspecific acute phase reactant. So it's really, it, it prevents, uh, or it actually, I think actually causes uh, an increase in iron sequestration to prevent like foreign pathogens from utilizing iron. Uh, that's more detail than we probably even need to know here. Basically, it's a nonspecific acute phase reactant. Um, you'll see it sometimes more related to like anemia of chronic disease, things like that. It's not going to tell us much about this patient's sideroblastic anemia. It's not going to confirm that. And then lastly, the hemoglobin electrophoresis number four, uh, we talked about that with the thalassemias and everything. That'll, that would be helpful if this were a structural problem with her globin protein, but we've already talked about why that's not the case. That's not an issue for her. Her problem, because she has a sideroblastic anemia, is just incorporating that iron into the heme molecule. So 
as I mentioned there, she has sideroblastic anemia. So let's talk a little bit about what is sideroblastic anemia and then why the correct answer for this question would be the Prussian blue staining. So let's talk about sideroblastic anemia. So sideroblastic anemia is characterized by the inability to incorporate iron into the heme molecule when you're synthesizing heme. So what happens is that the cells have iron in them. As we've seen in this patient, she has adequate iron stores. She's just unable to put it in the right place in the cell. So what happens is that iron gets stored in the wrong place in the cell and can be seen then when you stain cells in the bone marrow. So what would you expect to see in a bone marrow stain of a patient with sideroblastic anemia, Amy? Uh, like dark blue dots? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, they call them ringed sideroblasts when you use the Prussian blue staining. In this case, that is the correct answer. To confirm that she has sideroblastic anemia, we would take a look at bone marrow biopsy sample and would stain those cells. And we would expect to see the iron being stained as dark blue uh, in, a, in a ringed sideroblast around the cell. It's, it's not being placed in the right part of the cell. Now, the same test, if we were to do a peripheral smear instead of a bone marrow biopsy, uh, we could also see something on staining. And that would be another kind of classic buzzword, step one type of question, but that would be basophilic stippling. So the marrow shows ring sideroblasts and the peripheral smear would show basophilic stippling. So again, probably more step one material than step two, but something to keep in mind because I've heard in general that step two is starting to move a little bit more towards this basic sciences. So it's a good thing to keep in mind and remember. I think the last thing to really mention with sideroblastic anemia is it can either be inherited or acquired. The most common causes of acquired sideroblastic anemias are alcohol use long-term, uh, lead poisoning, the use of one medication in particular. This, I'll give you a hint, Amy. This is a medication used to treat TB. What, what, what could cause uh, sideroblastic anemia in a patient who's receiving TB treatment? Oh, gosh. Uh, can you think real hard? Okay, I think... I think it's isoniazid. It is isoniazid, which is a staple of both latent TB treatment or active TB treatment. So well done there. I hope you haven't come across any uh, patients with TB in your practice as a, an intern, but oh, yeah. But that's oh, you have Act active TB? <laughs> well, the patient had HIV. So mm. it was kind of like you had to be a little bit extra careful and wear your N95 and be in the pressurized room. So yeah, I would say we were we were worried about the activity of it. More cautious than anything. Fair enough. Yeah, well, fortunately, uh, we're all too familiar with N95s these days. It's not uh, that back in the day, that would have been a really exciting thing to get to wear an N95 mask. But now I think, unfortunately, we, uh, we all have them at home. Anyway, the last, uh, the last thing to mention, I think, uh, on that front is there is one vitamin deficiency as well that can cause a sideroblastic anemia, and it's actually associated with isoniazid use, and that is a B6 or pyridoxine deficiency. So all of those things can cause sideroblastic anemia, reversible causes rather, of sideroblastic anemia. And just something to, yeah, I guess, keep in mind on test day that, that there are multiple causes, uh, but the big finding that really jumps out in a sideroblastic anemia to help you distinguish that from other causes of microcytic anemia is that high serum iron because the patient is storing iron just fine. They're just not able to incorporate it. And then I guess the very last pearl I wanted to mention while we're talking about anemia in general is 
Anytime you see uh, microcytic anemia in an elderly patient, so not necessarily a 16-year-old here like we had in this case, but if this patient were 75 and they presented with a microcytic anemia, uh, what would the first thing you'd be concerned about? Colon cancer. Oh, yeah. Uh, that, that is the classic is this um, bleeding that they might, might be occult. They might even not even notice it. It might be in their stool and they don't even know. So if you have an elderly patient presenting with microcytic anemia, you definitely want to get that colonoscopy and go down that path. Often in a STEM for something like that, they're going to mention like, oh, they've been lost to follow-up for 20 plus years, or they've been out of the country, or they're from a low-income country. Let's see, what else have I seen? Or they'll do something like, this patient has refused, or oh, there's a, quite a few ways they can present it. But yeah, it's basically going to be someone who hasn't been having their screening colonoscopy starting at, do you remember what the new age is now? Oh no, did they update the, the guidelines again? I think that darn USPCSF. <laughs> uh, I, I would still, I, I guess the last I knew of was five, every five years starting at age 50, assuming you have, every 10 years rather, assuming you have a totally normal screening. But I, I could also be wrong on that. It's been, a, it's been too long, unfortunately, since I've taken a, a, an exam on that front. <laughs> Yeah, I think 45 is the new number. I was just, that is because I was just looking at updated guidelines um, for my primary care practice, patients that I've been seeing this month. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you're uh, <laughs> up to date as you're providing actual care to patients. I hope, looking forward to doing the same myself once I get back into the, the clinical world this fourth year. You know, it's, it's weird being so divorced from clinical medicine again, but yeah, that's why, that's why we have a good balance, Amy. <laughs> it's a much needed time though too so enjoy enjoy the glory that is the fourth year for sure oh certainly am certainly am <laughs> all right well i think that uh that wraps up everything we have to say about microcytic anemia uh, so let's move on to our second question today again starting with the interrogatory which of the following could be seen in the laboratory investigation of this patient so we have a 65 year old male who comes in for evaluation of recurrent episodes of blood in his urine. He has not had any abdominal or flank pain. He reports weight loss, a burning sensation on getting out of the shower, dizziness, and episodic blurring of vision. Previous medical and family history is insignificant, and he is not on any medications. He has smoked two packs of cigarettes every day for the past 40 years and drinks wine every night. A CT scan shows a mass on the upper pole of his right kidney. Which of the following could be seen in the laboratory investigation of this patient? First option, increased levels of erythropoietin. Second option, decreased leukocytes. Third option, decreased hematocrit. Fourth option, increased lipase. So I will uh, hand the floor to you, Amy. What are some of the things after reading this question that stand out to you? Oh gosh. I mean, the first thing was definitely the recurrent episodes of blood in his urine. I think the first time I saw something like that, I'd probably go to the uh, urgent care or the ER, but apart from that. So I guess my mind from that point in the question goes to, okay, could this be like a porphyria or does he have like a bladder cancer or something like that? As I'm reading through, no abdominal pain, no flank pain. Um, okay. So weight loss makes me go, okay, this is probably a cancer, a burning sensation on getting out of the shower. 
That's a little weird. I wonder if that's something similar to like an itchiness when you're in the shower, like the heat is causing uh, a sensation of like, he called it burning. Maybe it's itching for other people. Dizziness, it's kind of non-specific right now. And then episodic blurring of vision. Okay, that's that's a little strange, but it's really starting to put together for me that he might have elevated hemoglobin. Before this, he was well. Let's see, he's not on any medication. So that kind of also makes me think it's not a porphyria. Okay, so now we're getting into his like uh, social history. So he's got two packs of cigarettes every day for the past 40 years, and he drinks wine every night. And then the kicker of the CT scan, and we've got a mass on the upper right pole of the kidney. So what lab value am I expecting to be like elevated or something is going on with it? Well, yeah, so I think before you before you answer that, what do you think? I think I, I well, it's personally, I like what you did there and in, in highlighting the big symptoms that he is experiencing and then trying to kind of tie that together and, and get a picture based on, of, you know, based on those symptoms. So I think we have blood and urine and weight loss and a mass then on the right pole of his kidney with a guy who has been smoking two packs a day, every, every day uh, for 40 years. And drinks wine every night. So he's got a lot of risk factors for, right? Malignancy, like you mentioned, right? Bladder cancer, kidney cancer, something like that. And then we have this mass on his kidney. So at this point, to me, I would say, so first off, one thing he's suffering from most likely is some sort of renal carcinoma, right? Most likely if if, if he's got a mass there. I would say renal, (laughs) renal cell carcinoma is probably the most likely differential. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I would say that's most likely, you know, whenever you see blood and urine, weight loss, et cetera. But then he's also got like those other couple kind of odd findings that you mentioned, the the episodic blurry vision and the burning when getting out of the shower. So those two are a little bit more helpful for us, I think, because they're a bit more specific than the more generic constitutional symptoms. So what are those kind of those two specifically episodic blurry vision and the burning when getting out of the shower? I think those two things in particular to me signal something uh, like a polycythemia, right? Those are, those are two things you see when people are hypercoagulable. Um, so, so now I'm thinking, okay, we have a guy with likely kidney cancer, and then he's also got these symptoms that seem like he's hypercoagulable. He's got these maybe some uh, transient like clots or something forming that's causing these other symptoms. So I think kind of tying all of that together is the idea that this man is suffering from some polycythemia, probably secondary to this cancer that he's also suffering from, right? At least that's kind of how I like to then resummarize this. And then with those thoughts in mind, we can kind of do what we did last time and reword the interrogatory, uh, knowing that this man is suffering from a polycythemia. And with that, we could say, which of the following could be seen in the laboratory investigation of a patient with polycythemia who is also suffering from a renal malignancy. So now with that in mind, let's go through the answer choices and kind of rule them out one by one. So first thing, uh, this patient, as we said, a patient with polycythemia would expect to see increased levels of erythropoietin. So we're going to actually skip that one for the moment, put a pin in it. Uh, Let's go to number two, the decreased leukocytes. Would we expect to see decreased leukocytes in this patient? I mean, nothing in the stem makes me think like he's not getting infections or... Um, it doesn't sound like it's like they're leading you towards like a primary bone malignancy or that this is spread to the bone. So I would probably toss that out. Yeah, totally agree. 
when I think of decreased leukocytes, my differential goes to like some sort of bloodborne cancer, maybe an autoimmune disease, like a, a lupus or something like that, maybe um, an infectious cause or some drug toxicity, something like that. None of which we are suspecting in this patient. Uh, so then moving on to the next choice, a decreased hematocrit. Well, that's essentially the opposite of polycythemia, right? That would be if he's like anemic or has a you know lower hematocrit, which he's showing no signs of that, um, kind of showing the opposite, in fact. Uh, the third choice. And say so you could get stuck with decreased hematocrit because he is peeing blood. Oh, that's that's a good point. Good point. I mean, I think that would, that's like a big, I think that would be like the one that I would have to like pause and think about for a second if I didn't know that it was polycythemia vera. Just, um, so don't be ashamed if that was like what you thought because he's peeing blood. So that's not a terrible um, immediate thought process. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really good point. Uh, anybody who's losing blood can be anemic and could have a low hematocrit. That's totally true. It's just that uh, because we also have these other weird findings that are more specific for uh, high hematocrit, that's just not the case in, for this exact patient. But uh, but yeah, totally. I, I like the way you're uh, keeping that differential wide and, and that is a definitely plausible uh, potential. Moving on to the last incorrect choice, increased lipase. That one, to me at least, I don't have a very broad differential for increased lipase other than more like pancreatitis type of picture, to be honest. Uh, I'm sure there are other GI conditions that can cause an elevation of lipase, but the one that really most associated to me, at least, is a pancreatitis. Do you have anything else that you think you think of when you yeah, see a high like lipase? Gallstone, or like a really bad cholecystitis, where it's blocking off, like a uh, like after the pancreas, or some kind of malignancy that's also blocking off. But otherwise, no, I don't have any anything that would be elevating our lipase other than pancreatitis. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. It's 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 more GI related, and he's having no real GI complaints rule that one out so that leaves us with the correct answer which is increased levels of erythropoietin with that in mind let's talk a little bit about polycythemia and how we could uh, evaluate polycythemia and work it up so polycythemia is any condition that uh, causes an increased level of circulating red blood cells uh, so they have patients with polycythemia either have a high hematocrit a high hemoglobin or just high red blood cell counts. So for women, that'd be like a hemoglobin of more than 16.5. For men, it'd be a hemoglobin of higher than 18.5. Uh, within the field or the realm of polycythemia, uh, it can be either absolute polycythemia or relative. Relative polycythemia is just like dehydration, basically. So that in that case, you know, your plasma volume is slightly decreased. So it makes it seem as if you have too many red blood cells, but your actual red blood cell count is pretty much normal. So that's, that's a common condition. A lot of people suffer from relative polycythemia. Absolute polycythemia is a little bit more unique and a bit more concerning. So absolute polycythemia means you actually have too many red blood cells being made. So that can either be primary or secondary. The primary cause of absolute polycythemia would be a condition, I think you briefly mentioned earlier, was polycythemia vera. And that's like a, basically a myeloproliferative disorder, so a blood cancer. Uh, usually like 95% of the time caused by a JAK2 mutation that causes proliferation of all your cell lines, but mostly affects red blood cells. So they get disproportionately increased compared to the other cell lines. And in this case, this is all happening in your bone marrow. So it's not responding to your exogenous erythropoietin. So you actually, what, what, I guess, what would you expect to see then 
for the erythropoietin levels in a patient with a primary absolute polycythemia. So this is polycythemia vera, basically. What would their EPO levels look like? Right. So um, we make EPO in our kidneys. And if the problem, so like if the bone marrow cancer is creating a ton of red blood cells, it's not listening to the EPO level, then I think it'd be decreased. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's that, that feedback loop. So you don't, your body senses that it's got too many red blood cells already. It's not going to create more EPO to make even more. So patients with polycythemia vera or absolute primary polycythemia, uh, they're going to have low EPO. Now in this patient, we have a tumor that's causing this polycythemia. So this is the, the mass on his kidney is causing polycythemia. So it's a secondary cause of polycythemia. And in that case, we're actually going to see a high EPO. Uh, so it's total opposite there. And that's, again, why this is the correct answer to this question. Again, as you mentioned, erythropoietin is made in the kidneys. So it is often seen as a perineoplastic syndrome with renal cell carcinomas. Uh, it can also be seen with some other cancers as well, pheochromocytomas, uh, hemangioblastomas, uh, hepatocellular carcinoma can all cause increased levels of EPO as well. Uh, so that would be a secondary cause of polycythemia. And the other thing that can cause secondary polycythemia other than a perineoplastic syndrome like we have here would just be a patient who's hypoxic. So that could be somebody who smokes a lot, somebody who's at goes up to the top of a mountain, they might start making more erythropoietin because they're hypoxic. And so they need to make more red blood cells to be able to store more oxygen, or they might have something like obstructive sleep apnea, something like that. The last thing I want to mention about polycythemia before we move on is what is the treatment for polycythemia? Polycythemia and not uh, renal cell carcinoma. Yeah, well, that's true. We're not. I'm not. I'm not quizzing you on uh, oncology and uh, yeah, the, Thank goodness. the chemotherapy <laughs> regimens. <laughs> um, I mean, a basic answer is bloodletting or full body. Yeah, yeah. Go back to the Middle Ages, right? Let's let's do some bloodletting. It's the, the treatment for everything. Now, uh, that is actually the treatment for polycythemia. They have too many red blood cells. Well, let's take some blood out of them. So just phlebotomy is the classic, um, classic answer there. If you also uh, have a patient with polycythemia vera, there are other medications that can suppress the bone marrow, um, things like hydroxyurea, interferon alpha, and some different uh, immunomodulators. I'm not even going to pronounce them I, <laughs> and I can't give any trade names or, uh, you know, because we're not getting paid by any drug companies that I'm aware of. Uh, so again, this question didn't ask about treatment, but just something to keep in mind. If uh, you have a polycythemia patient, that's the first line would be just typically phlebotomy. All right. And that is all I have to say about polycythemia. Are you uh, ready to move on to question three? Yeah, I think we did a good job covering that. All right. Well, this is our third and final question of the day. Which of the following is the most appropriate for the management of this new condition? And the question, a 20-year-old woman was diagnosed with a left leg deep vein thrombosis in the emergency department. After acute management and stabilization, she was prescribed a low molecular weight heparin subcutaneous injections twice daily and warfarin. She comes in for a follow-up one week later, now complaining of increased left leg swelling and a few patches of purple discoloration on both of her legs. Her vital signs are all normal. Physical exam confirms increased swelling in her left leg. A petechial rash is also noted on her legs bilaterally. A complete blood cell count 
includes a hemoglobin of 15, leukocytes of 8,000, and platelets of 55,000. Which of the following is the most appropriate for the management of this new condition? And the answer choices are argatroban, number two, fond of Paranux, number three, heparin, and number four, vitamin K. So what do you think is going on with this patient and what, how do we treat it? Uh, okay, well, this is, I would call it a, a moderately scary situation. So it looks like we were treating her for her DVT and it's gotten worse and actually looking at her platelets, which was kind of the other thing that really startled me, her platelets. We don't know what they were before this one week, you know, follow up, but they're now 55,000, which is very low. All of her vitals are fine, which is good. Really, I think it comes down to she had a DVT. We were treating it with heparin and warfarin initially, but looks like things actually got worse instead of better. So that makes me think, and her platelets are down. So that makes me think this is hit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got it hit. You hit it right on the head. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I had to. I had to. But uh, yes, she is suffering from HIT, which is also known as heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. So with that in mind, let's rephrase our interrogatory and look through our answer choices. So which of the following is the most appropriate for the management of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia? So our first choice is uh, argatroban, which is the correct answer. So we're going to skip that one for now. Number two, fondaparinux. So why is fondaparinux not correct? Well, it actually can be used to treat HIT, but a little background on fondaparinux is it's a synthetic anticoagulant that binds to antithrombin and secondarily inactivates factor 10A. So it's like a 10A inhibitor, but it operates indirectly. Uh, And it is a suitable alternative for HIT, but it's administered subcutaneously. So it's kind of a slower onset and it's actually not FDA approved yet for this indication. And so for a patient here, who's we're we're pretty concerned about, we want to stabilize, you know, pretty immediately. She has a DVT clearly and um, is coming back, you know, for HIT. Uh, We don't want to give her something sub-Q that's going to take a long time to get her anticoagulated again. So we need something a little faster acting. So that's why we're going to probably hold off on the Fondaparinox. Though, again, it is possibly a suitable medication. It doesn't interact with heparin the same way that uh, like low molecular weight heparins would. Uh, so moving on, the third choice was heparin. So do we want to give this patient with heparin-induced thrombocytopenia more heparin? Uh, well, <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to, I don't even need to address that, right? I think, I think it's pretty clear. Uh, in patients with HIT, you need to hold all heparin products, including low molecular weight heparin. So anything even related to heparin, we got to hold. And then lastly, vitamin K. Yeah, first step, exactly. Uh, Before you do anything, just stop that heparin. If it's happening in the hospital, if this is more of an acute problem, you stop that heparin drip. Or, you know, if they're coming into the clinic, you you tell them not to take any more sub-Q heparin, anything like that. And then the fourth choice is vitamin K. Uh, So actually, in this case, we probably could give this patient vitamin K because there is clotting present. She still has, she does show signs of a DVT still. She has that unilateral leg swelling still. Um, but typically you only need to do that if you're, it, it, it's, it's more used, I guess, for patients who are on warfarin, who are suffering from like a more acute clot, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia hit with an acute clotting problem. 
uh, you would want to rapidly give them basically everything to reverse their clotting factors. I was reading the up to date on this and it's kind of, um, it's a little bit not totally clear on that one. So it's just, it's not the most right answer in this case, though, again, because this patient does have evidence of a clot, they could ultimately re um, receive that vitamin K. It's just not the most right answer here. So the right answer is Argatroban, and that is just the, always the synthetic uh, or the, the anticoagulant of choice uh, in patients suffering from HIT. It's a direct thrombin inhibitor. Uh, so it doesn't interact with the platelet factor four that causes HIT. Um, and it's also very fast acting. Uh, it's given IV and can immediately get this patient anticoagulated. Uh, so they'll be safe and not suffering from further, further clots. Uh, so I'll take this opportunity to talk a little bit about HITS without going too deep into the weeds, but it's something that actually affects a lot of patients. And because so many people are on anticoagulation in the hospital, especially, it's something that I think everyone should know about and kind of keep in the back of their mind on their differential, especially if they see low platelet count. So this can affect up to five patients who receive five patients, 5% 5 of patients who receive heparin products, which I was surprised at that number. I mean, I think, I don't know if that, does that surprise you at all? No, I mean, well, I think there's like a couple of things. Yeah. At first, when I heard that number, I was kind of like, oh my gosh, that's like a decent number of people. But often like people, or at least in my experience, like we have people on heparin drips, they're on heparin drips for a couple of days, and then like they could be out of the hospital within 10 days. So we might not even see that they have hit because we're not like monitoring their platelets anymore, which I think is the more startling thing. That is a really good point. I totally didn't consider that. But yeah, how many of us are walking around susceptible to this condition, but we just haven't ever been on a heparin product long enough to know? That's, that's a great point. So yeah, I guess that, that does make a lot more sense. And as you just mentioned there, this, this condition typically arises five to 10 days after exposure to the heparin products. I'm not going to go into hit type one versus type two. I think that's a little more detailed than we would need to know. Uh, but there are multiple types. There's a less severe form that happens a little quicker. Uh, and that's type one and type two is a little bit more severe and that's more likely what this patient's suffering from. Uh, so what are some symptoms you can see with HIT or what would clue you in? Uh, you can see venous or arterial thromboses. So that's in a patient who you're trying to anticoagulate, you're actually seeing more thrombosis, which is very scary. Um, often you'll see some sort of necrotic skin lesion where they're injecting that heparin. So they'll, they'll, they'll notice it when they're doing the injections that their skin's getting hard or changing colors there. And then you can sometimes see if it's given IV, you can see some acute systemic reactions. So kind of similar to like a transfusion reaction, almost fever, chills, uh, hypertension, shortness of breath, even cardiopulmonary arrest, things like that. Uh, so patients who are suffering from HIT are at very high risk again of thrombosis, which is completely opposite the whole point of the anticoagulation. So the treatment then for HIT, if these patients are at high thrombosis risk, would be first to stop all those heparin products. And we need to, to do that, or basically that stops the activation of the platelets that had resulted from this heparin. We then want to start them on a different anticoagulant. So Argatroban being the gold standard there. Uh, they can also use Bivalarudin or Fondaparinux, as we've mentioned. Uh, DOAX are also acceptable for long-term. So things like Apixaban, Rivaroxaban, uh, dabigatran, things like that can also be done long-term, but again, they're a little slower acting because those are oral anticoagulants as opposed to IV. And then you also want to hold warfarin in any patient who has hit with warfarin. And then you can 
plus or minus add that vitamin K, as we talked about earlier, if they're also suffering from an actual thromba, thrombus, then you can try to uh, reverse that. I guess the other thing to mention there is just that warfarin is okay for patients who have hit. It's just not in the acute phase. So until we get them on a more stable long-term anticoagulation, don't restart their warfarin. So wait on that. And then the last thing to mention is just how do we evaluate patients who are concerned about for HIT? If we see some of those signs, uh, you can use the 4T score to calculate. And I'm not going to go through the criteria of the 4T score. Everyone can look it up on MDCalc or your favorite calculation website, but something that is used very often clinically just to rule out or get a sense of what the patient's risk of HIT is. And if their 4T score says that they're at an intermediate or high risk, we'd want to confirm that with uh, antibody testing uh, and then potentially even go the next step to confirm with like a serotonin release assay. Uh, so kind of the, again, the steps to working up HIT, I would say first evaluate with a 4T score because that's non-invasive, no, no labs involved, something you can just type in their numbers. Then you would move on to antibody testing, looking for antibodies to that platelet factor four. And then if that comes back positive, we can do the confirmatory test of a serotonin release assay. So I've seen all of those things come up at some level on step tests. So I just wanted to mention each of those. And then I guess the very last thing, a couple of just general HIT things and thrombocytopenia notes, uh, the confirmatory testing process for HIT is pretty slow. So we want to act before we even, you know, get all those tests back. So if you even suspect HIT, stop the heparin. There are other alternative anticoagulants you can use. They might be more expensive, but this is a safety thing. So always stop heparin before you get the test back. Um, and then thrombocytopenia in general, it's not always due to HIT, right? There's a lot of things that can cause it. It's got a very broad differential. It could be due to underproduction of platelets. So infection, malignancy, congenital problems, vitamin deficiencies, or it could be due to destruction of platelets where we see things like ITP or TTP, HUS, autoimmune conditions, patients on dialysis get platelet destruction, or you could see platelets being uh, sequestered in the spleen, like patients with cirrhosis, you'll see a lot of uh, thrombocytopenia. So there's a lot of different causes of thrombocytopenia and because patients who are hospitalized often have you know, one or more of these conditions, it can muddy the picture. I'm sure you've seen that again, right? A lot of these very sick patients saw. I believe that's everything I had to talk about with HIT. Is there anything you wanted to add from your uh, clinical experience in these last few months? Uh, no, not really. I think that was a pretty good, like, basic overview, and especially, like, kind of on the, the testing side of things. I think you did a really good job. And I wanted to say, like, welcome to Inside the Wards. Uh, this has been really fun, and I think you're going to do really well as a host of this. Ah, well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm really, as I said earlier, really happy to be a part of the team and looking forward to uh, contributing. All right. See you all next time. Good luck on your boards and steps. <laughs> <laughs>